This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, good morning to you, Vancouver Province columnist Mike Smith. It's my pleasure to fill in for Simi on a special New Year's Eve edition of the show. We got some fun New Year's Eve content coming up for you. First up, though, let's talk about the news that broke yesterday about B.C. government trade offices in Asia. Now, these are standalone offices that the provincial government runs to encourage trade with our partners in Asia. People might be surprised to know that we had all these offices. They got one in Beijing, Shanghai, uh, Guangzhou in China, Hong Kong, Tokyo, Seoul, Manila, Jakarta, Singapore, there's a lot of them. New Delhi, Mumbai, Chandigarh in India. So what's going on with the government? We discovered yesterday, and this was revealed by a liberal MLA. The government didn't announce this. It was a liberal MLA, Ben Stewart, and uh, figured this out. He was a former BC trade rep to China. The government planning to shut down those offices, and the people who work there will now be embedded as they say, in federal consulates and embassies in Asia to save money. The government says they'll use the money they save to keep spending it to enhance our trade. The liberals not happy about this. They don't think it's a good move. I'm going to speak to the NDP cabinet minister responsible, Bruce Ralston, a little later on the show. But first, let's check in with BC Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Hi, thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks a lot for doing this. It was interesting to hear this news yesterday. It was not announced by the government. It was your opposition caucus that revealed this to the public. What do you think about what the government's doing here? Well, you know, they tried to hide this. They tried to do this secretly because the offices involved are 12 to 15 hours ahead of BC, so they got the message on New Year's Eve, uh, their last day of the year, they're told they're all fired. Just a small correction, you said they're going to move them into the consulates. They're not. They're firing all these people. And now they're going to talk about hiring B.C. government employees to go and sit in the Canadian embassies. Well, that doesn't work because you're sitting next to Ontario and Quebec, and the feds get the calls, and the feds say, hmm, we better take care of Ontario and Quebec first. And what happens is the feds think of B.C. in terms of log exports. They don't think of BC in terms of engineering and architecture and aircraft and all the fancy things that we do here. So we get the short end of the stick in those federal trade commissioners' offices. Make no mistake about it. So the NDP are doing this purely to save some money. We do a huge amount of trade with Asia. It's actually growing in dollars. It's growing as a percentage of our trade. It's moving um, up to catch up with the, the trade with the United States. We need to be building this trade with the Asian countries. And NDP yeah. and their small-minded way are going to go hide in Victoria and pretend it's not real. Well, don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. Well, I'm sure everyone would agree that we need to expand trade with Asia, or most people would agree with you, and the NDP government, I'm sure, would agree with you on that. But as for your point, you're saying that all these people are being fired out of these offices. The government is saying that, well, look, they're going to shut these offices down, yes, but the, I'm looking at the statement issued by the B.C. government last night. It says public servants will be co-located in the government of Canada's consulates and embassies throughout Asia. So the people we have on the ground there will be transferred into these federal consulates and embassies, won't they? So they're saying that this is just a different... They're still going to have people on the ground there doing this work to enhance trade with Asia. They'll just be doing it out of a different office. They'll be working with the feds now instead. So, well, so what, do you, what, what do you mean they're being fired? Here's what happened in the 1990s, Mike. The NDP opened trade offices all over Asia, places like Malaysia, Vietnam, Singapore, and they flew people over from British Columbia who didn't have any real understanding of what was going on there, and it didn't work out. And so those offices were closed to save some money in the early 2000s under Gordon Campbell because they didn't work. And now what we've learned in the last 15 years is you're way better to use local contractors who actually know how the world works over there. It's complicated. You can't drop somebody in from Vancouver and say, let's make some sales in, in uh, Indonesia or Korea. They've got to be yeah. locally connected. And that's these people that we are currently employing as contractors are being fired. Okay, make you're no saying the, con- the contract says it, 91 days left. 
the contractors are being fired. Well, the contracts are being not renewed. Basically, the contract the the government is exercising its rights under the contract to cancel the contracts with these contractors. But we still have we still have provincial employees on the ground there that are going to continue to represent our interests and in trade with these Asian countries. They'll just be working with the feds now, right? Well, you better ask Bruce Ralston about that. And oh. the, the other question is, where's George Chow? He's our Minister of State for National Trade. He's disappeared. Looks like he's out of a job now because all they're going to do is move our people into the federal offices. And we've seen this yeah. movie before. The federal trade commissioners do a good job, but they don't really find the provinces very helpful. And their primary obligation is to Ontario and Quebec because that's where two-thirds of Canadians live. So British Columbia is going to get the short end of the stick with this new arrangement. We're going to end up paying pensions and benefits. Remember, we've got to pay housing for people who are provincial employees moved over to these countries. So you got to ask Bruce Ralston all these questions when he comes on, and you won't get an answer, I can tell you right now. Well, the, the government last night put out a statement that says this will actually be a good thing, that this is going to be more effective in enhancing our trade links with Asia because we'll be working very closely with our partners in the federal government. And that any money that is saved, I think they're they're acknowledging this is going to save them money, but they're saying any cost savings will be redeployed to an expansion of these programs to enhance BC businesses. Does that give you any comfort? No, that's government talk. You've seen this 50 times before in your career, Mike. What they're doing is trying to cut costs because they run out of money. Asia is a huge source of trade expansion for us. And they've decided to cut corners and put us in with the feds. Going in with the feds is nice, but it doesn't really do much for British Columbia. And we will just disappear into the fog in the federal embassies. Do you think that one of the the immediate concerns that jumped into my mind when I heard this news yesterday was that the federal government is, is certainly, I guess, in line with British Columbia's interests on things like developing liquefied natural gas we want to sell a lot of that stuff to asia they support the pipeline we want to sell we want to sell diluted bitumen to asia and the federal government supports the pipeline but there are other areas where they don't seem to be in 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 sync with bc's economic interests on things like fish farms for example so like justin trudeau has said that he wants to close down fish farms by 2025 and and these offices we're supposed to be selling all that uh, farm salmon over to in asia and, and now You're we're exactly par- now we're right, partnering right. up. Now we're partnering up with a federal government wants to shut the industry down. You're exactly right. And you know, beyond that, when you think about the big industries like LNG, they take care of themselves. The investors here are Korean Gas, the Petronas from Malaysia, Chevron. They know how to take care of themselves and how to sell their own product. What these offices are really good at is finding markets for things like engineering and architectural services, which BC exports all over the world. Mining development, where BC has a lot of expertise, specialized manufacturing, the, the aircraft that are made at the Victoria Airport, the Twin Otter design that is now made by Viking. Okay. Those are the folks who need trade promotion assistance. It's got to be specific to BC's interests. If you think about airplanes and the federal government, guess who they're selling first and foremost? Bombardier. And BC will come a distant third or fourth. So okay. we're way better off to have our own folks there especially folks who know the local market, not provincial government employees. Uh, While I have you, let's talk about some of the other issues here on the final day of the year, Uh, Andrew Wilkinson, especially uh, as we and looking ahead to 2020. The whole ride hailing issue, let me get your take on that, because here we are in the last day of the year. Obviously, the government's failed to deliver these services as promised. Your thoughts on that? Well, we've seen this movie before, haven't we, Mike? Uh, John Horgan came in saying ride hailing by Christmas 2017. Whoops. And it was 2018. Uh Uh-oh, now it's 2019. Whoops, missed it again. So we still have no ride-hailing services in B.C. The taxi industry is up in the air. They have no idea what's going on. There's no certainty. A driver, owner, operator told me the other day that his license value has dropped to zero. Nobody's interested in buying them because of all this uncertainty. So what do we get? Cartago pulls out of the market, and we have a major shortage of the ability to get around Metro Vancouver and the rest of the province. And the NDP are asleep at the switch. Well, Nothing has happened after all well, kinds of promises. I think a lot of people clearly want these services. The government clearly promised to deliver them over and over again. So it's a promise made and it's a promise broken for sure. But what about you guys? I mean, I'll, you guys are in power for 16 years. 
including years and years that Uber and Lyft and these other companies were begging to set up shop and to start operating in Vancouver. You guys didn't deliver either. Well, I think that's easy to say in retrospect, Mike, but the NDP has been in office now for three Christmases. Nothing has been delivered by Santa Claus Horgan. There's been nothing at all in terms of ride-hailing after big promises. So we can trash the past all we want to. It doesn't get us anywhere. Nobody's going to get around standing in the rain today. They can't get a car to go. They yeah, can't but, find a cab, and there's no ride ailing. Yeah, but you guys were just as obedient to these taxi companies as the NDP have been. I mean, people were screaming for these services when the liberals are in power too, and you guys failed just as badly. So every I time, got this I, every time, a year and a half ago, Mike, and I've said you, ever since then, level playing field, same vehicle safety, same insurance standards, same driver standards. Let's get on with it, and the NDP have done. Nothing. What would you do right now if you if uh, to get this industry up and running? What what is what should be being done right now? Well, they keep hiding behind the passenger transportation board, saying, "Gosh, yeah. golly, they can't do anything about it." And then they create all kinds of crazy rules. You know, the NDP wanted to all, have all kinds of limitations on things that basically made it uh, unworkable to operate in this market. The press and the transportation board overruled them on a couple of things. The NDP then started to try to change the rules again. They keep changing yeah. the rules so that nobody wants to get involved in the market. How do you apply when the target keeps moving and the taxi industry is left up in the air not knowing if they should continue or not? So Let me... nobody's happy now. Nobody's getting any service. It's pouring rain here in Vancouver on New Year's Eve. There are going to be yeah. a lot of people standing around on Granville Street at 1 o'clock in the morning cursing the NDP because they can't get a ride home. Okay. Okay. They couldn't get a ride home when you guys are in power either. I just Mike, remind, I just remind people of that. For 20 months. So let's focus on the present and let's get stuff done. L- let me ask you about ICBC, which I believe was another big story in 2019, and I think it could be an even bigger one in, in 2020. The dumpster fire, as David Eby famously called it, with the financial hemorrhaging going on over there, it's still going on. The fire is still burning. What will happen in, to ICBC, do you believe, in 2020, and what do you think should be done on that file? Well, David Eby threw a can of gasoline in the dumpster yesterday when one of my family members went to renew their insurance, and it doubled to over $3,000. Thanks oh, a lot, David Eby. And this is happening all over the province as people get these shocking increases in their ICBC fees. I've been saying for two years now, you deserve a choice. Why are we stuck with this state-run monopoly that David Eby seems to think is Wonderland? Why are we propping this thing up? Why are we the only place in the world that uses the ICBC model? Let's get the options on the table, find the best deal for consumers, and get it done. Because the NDP, like everything else they do, whether it's building a bridge or getting rid of portables in Surrey, big talk, no action. Uh. What this family member of yours that saw their insurance double is that is this a young person that had their they got that sticker shock? Well, you remember how it works, Mike. It's the top yeah. two drivers who use the vehicle the most who have the premium assessed. And yeah. if your premium risk rate, mine's actually very low, but I don't use that vehicle. So the people who are involved with that vehicle are paying a whopping big thirty two hundred dollars for insurance this coming year well, who's this your kid your kids or something well, or? i don't want to get into family details but it's okay. family members and it hurts boy you got to look around and say well where are we going to find that other sixteen hundred dollars most people don't have three or four thousand dollars lying around to give to john horgan because their insurance yeah. has gone up okay we just got a minute left what would you do privatize icbc no i think privatize is actually a pretty simplistic question and i'm not to insult you mike who would buy this organization? It loses a billion dollars a year. You want to go invest in that company? I don't think so. So we got to pick up the options around the world that work best for British Columbia, put them on the table, figure out what the options would be, and tell people the truth about what their premiums would be under different models, and let consumers decide. Thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Mike. Have a great, happy new year. A lot of people planning to go out tonight, have a good time, maybe have a little champagne or something else. And you know what that means tomorrow morning. Yeah, people are going to end up with the old dreaded hangover. Now, my preferred method to cure a hangover is to lie down in a dark room for several hours until it just goes away. But there are some other popular methods to cure a hangover. Do you drink a gallon of water to rehydrate? Maybe a nice big greasy meal? 
soak up all that booze. Maybe the old classic hair of the dog like a Bloody Mary with your breakfast the next day. We're going to do a little news you can use here now. So if you're planning to go out tonight, you're going to have a few drinks. How can you prevent and cure a hangover? Let's talk to an expert now, Dr. Omar Durrani. He is a family physician. We reached him in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Durrani, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank you for having me. Yeah, I appreciate it. What exactly is a hangover, first of all? Like, what's the medical kind of definition of that? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a funny question. We really don't have an actual definition of what a hangover is, funny enough. Hmm. And thus, there's no actual cure for it. Because what a hangover really is, refers to is just a, a group of adverse symptoms after drinking alcohol. Dizziness, headache, fatigue, nausea. Uh, you know, the variety of symptoms and everyone can have their own version of a hangover. So funny enough, it's layman's term that refers to a bunch of adverse symptoms from drinking um, alcohol. Okay. How about the old rehydrating? A buddy of mine once said, you know, he was a little feeling a little wobbly the next day. He was drinking a lot of water and he said to me, boy, if I knew I was going to be this thirsty this morning, I would have drank more last night. But you know, a lot of people will try to drink a lot of water or maybe Gatorade to kind of rehydrate the next day. Does that make sense? Yes, it does indeed. So, uh, you know, first of all, there is no absolute cure or preventive measure from right. uh, preventing a hangover. You actually nailed that time is the only based uh, evidence-based uh, approach to curing that hangover. But when it comes to hydration, you know, alcohol in and of itself is a diuretic. And if you're drinking and you're really not having the, the, the hydration in between, you can really dehydrate yourself, leading to more severe symptoms. So prehydrating and drinking uh, water throughout is definitely something that is uh, recommended and even afterwards to help flush out the toxins. Uh, what we do know is when you drink alcohol, that menthol is kind of converted to acetaldehyde. And we know that is a toxin and it can lead to obviously inebriation. And so kind of flushing that out through the system, this is where hydration definitely will be promoted here. How about a greasy meal? Because I remember in my younger days when I used to be able to party it up a bit more than I do now. I don't really drink much anymore. But in the old days, if I was feeling bad, it was one of those rare times where I'd be craving like a Big Mac and a large fries, you know, like like a big greasy meal. Does that help at all? No doubt. Hangovers are sometimes associated with lower sugar levels, and that can cause something like a mild version of hypoglycemia, which is low sugar. And so definitely having a hearty meal or uh, sometimes it diluting out the acetaldehyde by actually getting more uh, carbs uh, into your bloodstream can actually help with the symptoms. Okay. So having that big breakfast or that late-night meal can definitely help maintain that blood sugar level, okay, which how can about- uh, be an asset. How about the old classic hair of the dog? You just have like a Bloody Mary or whatever in the morning. <laughs> that's, uh, that's probably one of the uh, more common ones here, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, when it comes to the evidence of that, when it comes to what happens after the drink, it can really help drop the, the toxin level. So the toxin levels are acetaldehyde getting too high, and it can drop dramatically. You can get that hangover feeling. So having another drink can really prevent your body from having that uh, toxic substance drop all of a sudden. And so it can kind of uh, mitigate the symptoms you may be having. So having a, a small drink afterwards or hair the dog can uh, can actually have a science behind that to hopefully slow oh. down the dramatic effect of it so there is something there i wouldn't strongly recommend it but there is something there in regards to slowly bringing down um, your uh, toxin level okay last question for you dr durani in terms of like trying to prevent a hangover obviously not drinking at all is is a surefire method but what about you know people say don't mix your drinks you know stick to beer Mm -hmm. or stick to wine or stick to hard liquor or there's another one that the the order in which you drink if you are going to mix your drinks would make a difference like there's an old saying before before liquor never been sicker no beer beer before liquor never been sicker liquor before beer you're in the clear so if you drink the hard stuff first and then have beer you're okay that doesn't make any sense at all does it I'll tell you that's not something in my medical training and residency <laughs> we, we learned. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you know, there you know, when it comes to obviously one of the things I would recommend is, uh, like as we mentioned, hydrate throughout. Moderation is going to be the key, no doubt. 
um, you want to moderate uh, the drinking that you have and intersperse water in between. Right. And there's right. certain drinks that have high, uh, there's something called conjugars, which are really, uh, the ethanol is made by sugar fermenting yeast, and they really make menthanol, isopeptanol, and acetone. And those are really found in certain types of alcohol, whiskey, tequila. Uh, certain people have different metabolisms, and these can build up significantly in okay. addition to the acetaldehyde. So kind of limiting certain drinks, um, you can have less effect. But really, it's, it's common sense. You want to li- uh, limit your drinking or moderate right. it, hydrate and and also have a have a meal before and after as well. Okay, thanks for coming on. Happy New Year to you. Yeah, thank you for having me anytime. You bet. I appreciate it, Doctor Omar Durani. Now you may have heard or seen some hangover cures that are available in drugstores, or you can buy them online. Let's check in now with Nishal Kumar. He is the CEO of DHM Detox. He's a former UBC geoscience students a student who invented. A, uh, a hangover uh, remedy. Nishal, thanks for coming on. Hey there, thanks for having me. Okay, what is DHM Detox? How does it work? Uh, yeah, essentially, you know, I just heard uh, everything Dr. Omar Darani said there, and uh, he's pretty on point um, and, and has a really good understanding of hangovers. But um, basically, we work to boost your body's natural response to alcohol and break down uh, that toxic byproduct um, that he referred to, so acid aldehyde. And that's really the main culprit in uh, causing a lot of those uh, next day awful feelings um, like the nausea, brain fog, uh, anxiety and all that. Um, So it's a herbal blend and uh, basically a vitamin for people who drink uh, anywhere from a little bit to a lot. And uh, it works quite well. So it actually breaks down acetaldehyde or or boosts your liver enzyme that breaks down acetaldehyde uh, while you're drinking so it doesn't build up in your system. Okay, and you mentioned it's a natural product, so you don't require, you know, it's over the counter, right? It's not a prescription medication. Yeah, so right now, um, you know, we're a Canadian company, but we sell the product in the U.S. Um, and online and, and ship from the U.S. all over. Uh, but it's not a prescription product. Um, it's not, so basically, it's a blend of herbal ingredients, uh, vitamins, and amino acid, and some electrolytes. Um, so really, we attack the hangover problem at a very grassroots level and first principles problem rather than uh, and looking at it after the fact. Okay, does it work? Have you done any sort of clinical testing on it to prove whether it works or not? So all the ingredients have been researched, tested, and um, there are quite a few controlled trials that have been done. Um, we have tons of customers uh, that love the product. It helps them bounce back um, after a night out, whether it be you know a bigger night uh, for something like New Year's or you know, you're out in the evening with clients or whomever, having a couple of drinks and need to get to work the next day. Um, so we kind of live by the slogan, no days wasted, and uh, and it's been quite effective for quite a few people. Okay. Do you take it the night before or the next morning? Yeah, after your first few drinks, um, you, you take one of the capsules, and then after your next few, you take, a, take another one. Um, make sure you mix in some water there uh, because, hmm. you know, obviously there's no water in the capsules, and, and you do need to rehydrate. Um, also kind of get sleep on your own time. So if you're not, okay. you know, if you're not sleeping much, uh, you'll, you'll still be tired, right? Is it available in, like, drugstores in B.C.? It's not. So it's just okay. online right now. Uh, we're planning okay. for a Canadian rollout uh, sometime in 2020. Um, but uh, just online, yeah, at the moment. Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Appreciate it. Today, Let's talk about the B.C. government's trade offices in Asia now. There's around 13 of them in places like China, Japan, Korea, India, the news breaking yesterday, the government will cancel contracts for these offices in the region. Staff will be transferred into federal embassies and consulates throughout Asia. This came out yesterday after the BC Liberals got the drop on it, and they are not happy about it at all. I'm going to speak to Bruce Ralston in a moment the B.C. government cabinet minister responsible for it. But have a listen to this. This is my conversation earlier in the show with B.C. Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Well, you know, they tried to hide this. They tried to do this secretly because the offices involved are 12 to 15 hours ahead of B.C., so they got the message on New Year's Eve. They're firing all these people. And now they're going to talk about hiring B.C. government employees to go and sit in the Canadian embassies. Well, that doesn't work because you're sitting next to Ontario and Quebec and the feds, 
we get the calls and the feds say, hmm, we better take care of Ontario and Quebec first. And what happens is the feds think of BC in terms of log exports. They don't think of BC in terms of engineering and architecture and aircraft and all the fancy things that we do here. So the NDP are doing this purely to save some money. We do a huge amount of trade with Asia. It's actually growing in dollars. We need to be building this trade with the Asian countries. And the NDP yeah. in their small-minded way are going to go hide in Victoria and pretend it's not real. All right, as Liberal Leader Andrew Wilkinson speaking earlier today on the show. Let's get the government's reaction to that now. My guest is Bruce Ralston. He's BC's Minister of Trade. Minister, thanks for taking the time. I appreciate it. Uh, no problem, Mike. Great to be on. What, what's going on here with these offices? What are you guys doing there? Well, what, uh, what is uh, happening is we are transitioning from a model where there were contracted um, uh, services uh, to uh, government employees who will be co-located in Canadian embassies and, uh, and consulates. It's a model that uh, Alberta uh, follows, uh, Ontario uh, and Quebec. We think it will, um, the service will continue. We think it will be a, a much more effective way to deliver the service. We are paying at the moment about $1.6 million in office leases that will no longer be required to pay, and that saving will be invested back in people and, uh, and, and building the trade network for British Columbia's exports. Obviously, uh, Exports, uh, being a small open economy uh, in British Columbia and in Canada, is really an important part of what we do. We have a number of programs where we promote BC companies, uh, and that creates jobs here in British Columbia, of course. Once you move beyond a local or regional market into an international market, you have uh, potentially many more customers for your goods or services. So oh. so that's that's the shift. Um, it's uh, anyone who says that we are leaving those jurisdictions is is misinformed, and that is just flatly wrong. So we place a high, continue to place a high priority on trade, our trading uh, relationships, and uh, this model will be uh, is being uh, will be implemented uh, in uh, in April. Okay, you mentioned the cost savings there of 1.6 million to to cancel these office leases. If you if you're saving money here, are you saying that the money that's saved will be reinvested in the region in trade development in Asia, so the budget exactly. will remain the same? Okay, exactly, exactly right. Okay. And this is not a this is not a secret. We we discussed this in the estimates debate in the legislature. Uh, the one the liberal critic asked about it, and uh, that was signaled. Uh, there have been ongoing discussions with Canada and with key stakeholders. The, the reason for the announcement at this time is the contracts require 90 days notice, and most of them expire at the end of the fiscal year, which is March 31st. So um, that's why the notice was given to the contractors first. Um, and then uh, perhaps in retrospect, we might have uh, made an announcement with it. We were planning to make an announcement, but we thought it's appropriate to let the people directly concerned who have the contracts know first. Okay, you say that it wasn't a secret, but there really what there was no public announcement on this. I mean, the public found out about this yesterday from the Liberal Party, not from you guys. Uh, why this? Why the secrecy there? Why didn't you make an announcement? Well, this was happening. As I as I as I just just said, I, what we did, what we chose to do, is notify the contractors first. Clearly, someone, perhaps I'm guessing. Uh, a, gave that information to, to other people. But um, it, 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 it's, uh, it's well known that we were reviewing these contracts, that the opposition was aware of this nine months ago. Wow. Uh, and we plan to make a major, uh, bigger announcement uh, in the new year. But um, in retrospect, perhaps we should have done it that way. But, but uh, there's, no, there's no secret here. Uh, th- these are, wow. we're shifting the service delivery model, which uh, will save money that will be invested back in the service. And uh, we have opportunities to to do great things with uh, uh, new people in in our key markets. Okay, you heard the criticism there from Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson in the comments that we played. He is very critical of this move. He believes that we'd be a lot more effective in promoting our goods and services for sale in Asia with a standalone BC branded trade office in these key markets. How how can you assure people that by uh, transferring staff into federal embassies and consulates that you're going to do better 
in promoting BC over there? Well, let me give you an example. Back uh, when I was in opposition, uh, I went to uh, my colleague uh, Harry Baines and I on our on our vacation. Went to the BC office in Chandigarh. The BC office in Chandigarh is housed at the Canadian consulate office in Chandigarh, India. That was an arrangement that existed uh, under the Liberals. So these these arrangements uh, have existed in the past and. And uh, even even at that time, that was deemed to be very effective. Uh, was a, a good way to do it. Well, well, obviously, British Columbia and British Columbians have a lot of interest in Chandigarh being the uh, the capital of the uh, Punjab state. So, so there's there's nothing there's nothing really very surprising about the way in which these services are delivered. And as I said, other provinces uh, do the same thing. The government. Well, well, what do you? What do you? Whenever I visit and. Uh, my colleague uh, George Chow as well, when we visited uh, uh, Seoul and Tokyo in uh, in the spring of this year, uh, we, we met with the uh, Canadian ambassador to Japan, Ian Burney. We met with the Canadian ambassador to Korea, uh, Michael Daniger. Uh, and they provide uh, support services. Uh, they, they, the, the, the services work closely together in, on a day-to-day basis, work closely together with the Canadian consulates or embassies right now. But what so about the, the minister? minister really, the changes really recognizes what uh, the reality on the ground is. What about if you get into a situation, though, Minister, where you have a federal government whose policies might be at odds with our industrial and economic priorities here in British Columbia? I'm thinking specifically of Justin Trudeau's commitment in the recent election to transition the BC salmon farming. Uh, to close containment salmon farming and take salmon farming nets out of the, out of our waters within five years. I mean, that is obviously not in the interests of the BC salmon farming industry, and these offices are trying to sell f- uh, farmed fish to Asian customers. Isn't that a conflict? Um, well, I think that's a sort of uh, difference of opinion that can be managed, and and it's one example. But generally, the interests of British Columbia and Canada are aligned, and those Senior officials, um, whether they're ambassadors or consul generals, are quite willing to recognize British Columbia's economic priorities. We are, uh, as a province, the biggest uh, trader among provinces with Asia. They recognize our leadership, and they're happy to work with us. Uh, the Invest in Canada agency, uh, which uh, is a federal, new federal agency, which seeks to attract investment dollars to British Columbia, the the head of that is the former head of the Vancouver Economic Commission. So they, these huh. are people that have a very good understanding of British Columbia. They are proud Canadians, and they're, they really want to, to work with us to, to expand trade. And, and, and trade is, is pretty practical. I mean, what it means is if, if your company uh, sells uh, more goods uh, in, in, a, in another market, it creates jobs here. And the companies right. that have the ability to trade and export are generally higher growth companies, uh, more effective long-term, and uh, it's, okay. it's good for British Columbia and it's good for Canada. Last question Last question for you. Don't If you put these offices or these staff into Canadian embassies and consulates, how long is that going to take, and, is, and do we risk losing some business in, during the transition period? The, the transition will, will be seamless. That's why we've given the, the 90 days notice. But we've been in touch with Global Affairs Canada already uh, a long time ago. This has been worked out, and, and the details are, are well in motion. And it, that will be in place uh, at the time of the transition. And, then, and uh, the service will be, will, will be seamless. There will be uh, all, the, all the current clients and contacts will be uh, advised of this introduced and uh, there, there will be no break in service no no gap whatsoever thanks for coming on thanks very much Mike. let's talk about the unrest going on in baghdad right now the united states uh, saying today they will send additional forces to support their personnel at the u.s embassy in baghdad that's according to the u.s defense secretary mark esper today as attacks broke out among hundreds of protesters outside the u.s embassy in response to U.S. airstrikes in Iraq and Syria. That was, those uh, strikes were conducted on Sunday. The uh, Esper said the U.S. will take actions necessary to protect American citizens in Iraq. Two Apache helicopters 
also dispatched to fly over the embassy in a show of force. And, of course, U.S. President Donald Trump uh, tweeting away as well. Uh, troubling uh, situation there for sure. Let's check in with Redmond Shannon now, Global News reporter. Hi. Hi, Mike. Thanks for doing this. What's the latest there? What's going on? Well, it looks like things have calmed down now after a lot of trouble outside the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad today. Now, you probably heard the term over the past, well, decade and a half, the green zone in Baghdad. And that is right. where a lot of the Iraqi government buildings are and, and the U.S. Embassy is. And uh, that's a heavily fortified area of Baghdad because, obviously, of the the last uh, decade and a half of, of violence triggered by the invasion of Iraq in 2003. So that... A fortified green zone uh, is protected by Iraqi troops. They allowed a, a funeral procession to enter the, or people who were part of a funeral procession to enter that green zone today. Uh, they were mourning the at least 25 militia members uh, who were killed in those U.S. airstrikes, at least the Iraqi ones who were killed in those U.S. airstrikes on Sunday. And there was a lot of anger toward the U.S. for that. This militia is backed by Iran, but is formally a part of the Iraqi government and works underneath the Iraqi government, but is backed by Iran. And the U.S. struck against this uh, militia because it believes the militia has been uh, attacking uh, bases in Syria and Iraq that host U.S. troops. And then when on last Friday, a U.S. contractor was killed, the U.S. then went and uh, struck back and killing uh, dozens of these uh, militia members. So the procession then today, these these people on the streets of Baghdad were allowed into the green zone and allowed to get right up close to the U.S. embassy. And obviously... Right very angered about what has gone on, and they went for it. Sticks, um, uh, there was a number of fires lit, and then uh, the protesters actually got access to a reception building on the outside of the outer edge of the compound and managed to ransack that. A number of windows were smashed in, and reportedly one entrance to the main compound was stormed by a couple of dozen uh, men who were on, at the protest, but they were immediately uh, fought back by U.S. troops in the compound. So right now, things have calmed down, but it's been quite a crazy day. Um, and the U.S. Embassy has never seen an attack like wow. this since the U.S.-led uh, uh, invasion of Iraq 2003. Just got a minute left here. I, good to hear that things have calmed down. But is this a situation that could flare up again through, and maybe wider uh, flare up in the region. You got U.S. President Donald Trump on Twitter uh, blaming Iran uh, for the unrest there around the the U.S. embassy in Iraq and saying they will be held responsible. Is there is there danger that this could uh, escalate? Well, I think it has already escalated. So since yeah. since that initial killing of a U.S. contractor, we've had the killing of these militia members, and now we have the storming of the embassy. So. Who knows where this goes next? You have Donald Trump saying Iran coordinated or was behind this storming of the right. embassy today, and Iran has denied it. So this is almost a proxy war in some respects between the U.S. and Iraq, Iran okay. on Iraqi soil. Who knows where it could go next, Mike? Thanks for the update. You're welcome. It is New Year's Eve. If you'd like to get out tonight and have some fun and ring in not just the new year, but a new decade, well, there are options for you. In Vancouver, if you want to go fancy schmancy, there's opportunity to spend a lot of money. Maybe you want to do something a little bit more low-key. And if you want to see some fireworks tonight to ring in the new decade, well, the downtown Vancouver fireworks taking a one-year break, I'm afraid. Uh, let's find out about all that with Hannah McLean. She is the dished editor for Western Canada at the Daily Hive, dailyhive.com, and they've done a very good job on their website of uh, listing all the events going on in Vancouver. Hi, Hannah. Hey, how's it going? I'm it's going great. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for having me on. You bet. So let's start with um, what's going on, uh, some of the big events happening in the, in the city tonight. Yeah, so you mentioned luxury New Year's Eve events, and Vancouver yeah. is definitely in no shortage of that if you want to fall out a little bit. Uh, one of the most expensive ones going on is a Bond-themed Skyfall party tonight at the Trump Hotel. Uh, 
You can get in for as little as 100 but you can also pay a pretty penny for um, some packages, too, if you want to kind of go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Okay, that's like a James Bond theme, so you got to go wearing a tuxedo, I guess? Totally, yeah. It's totally yeah. Casino Royale theme. There's going to be six DJs, and the event actually says that there will be fireworks at midnight along with a balloon drop, too. So it looks like if wow. you uh, get into that, you might see some fireworks in downtown Vancouver tonight. Okay, and you can spend a lot of money at that thing just checking online on, on your website there, Hannah. You can spend up to 2500 bucks depending on the package you select to go to this thing tonight. Absolutely, yeah. You can uh, really, uh, you can really go into the new year big if you if you feel like it. Okay, so if you really want to go crazy, I guess you could do that tonight. What are some uh, cheaper options? Yes, totally. So if you want to take your New Year's Eve celebration to the water, there's actually a Speakeasy 2020 cruise. It's going to be a yacht party. It's a 20s themed three hour cruise, and you can get tickets for around a hundred dollars. So it's a little more reasonable, but still kind of celebratory. And then uh, on the cheaper side of things, there are tons of celebrations happening in local restaurants and bars. Colony uh, on the Granville Strip, right in the entertainment district, they have some great events going on, and it's only around $20 to $30 to get in. Uh, And on the other side of town at the Fox Cabaret, they've got a 20-theme celebration going on as well, and it's between $15 and $45 as well. Okay, I think they got something going on at TELUS World of Science. Yes, that's right. So. New Year's Eve 2020 at the TELUS World of Science. There's going to be five fully licensed bars, two rooms of music on two floors, and six of the city's top DJs and performers. Uh, General admission to that event starts at $75. You can also buy VIP packages and everything like that, too. Um, But, yeah, that happens tonight at 9 p.m. So if you are interested in going to that, you can uh, look into that on the site as well. Okay, how about some, uh, are there any kind of family-friendly events? Like, let's say you got kids and you want to take out your kids to something tonight. Is there anything like that available? There are a couple of things out of the city that are more geared towards family-friendly. Uh, there's an exclusive fireworks show at Mount Cypress tonight. It kicks off at 8 p.m. Um, that's for pass holders and ticket holders, so you'd have to buy tickets to that, but it's a fun way for the kids to enjoy New Year's Eve a little early. There will also be fire pits and s'mores at that event. Uh, and if you're in the Whistler area, Whistler Blackcomb has their free fireworks show Um so it's a live live show that happens at 8 p.m. and midnight as well at the base of Whistler Mountain at Skiers Plaza. Okay, speaking of the fireworks, Hannah, you could get them at Cypress there, you mentioned, but there are no fireworks downtown, is that right? Remember, there used to be fireworks in like Cole Harbor, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah, so no, there's no uh, big Vancouver fireworks show this year. As you mentioned, uh, the downtown one is taking a hiatus until next year. Um, but yeah, Whistler Blackcomb, they have their fireworks and then Mount Cypress as well. Uh, of course the Seattle Space Needle will be having their fireworks as well, but that's a little bit of a drive. So nothing in downtown Vancouver. Well, that's too bad, but I guess they're, they're in a transition year and they're going to have the fireworks will be back next year. Is that right? Correct. And they're going to be back even bigger and better. It's going to be more accessible and and easier for people to get down and back. So I look forward to to seeing that next year. Okay. And speaking of Hannah McLean from dailyhive.com, what about this uh, Skytrain party? Like I remember hearing about this last year. This is some sort of annual dance party on Skytrain. What is this? Yeah. So it is actually the fourth annual year for the Skytrain and Seabus dance parties. Um, so they kick off tonight at 8 p.m. And basically hundreds of people will fill up the, the train. There will be two sound systems on opposite sides of the train. And you can head in and have an epic dance party as your last dance party of 2019. Um, if folks want to participate, you can go online and register. And then the starting location of the dance party will be revealed. But I think there's only a few wow. spots left last time I checked. So if you want to go you got to get on there fast. And I think, is that one free? That one is free. You can oh. um, pay for entry by donation if you'd like. It is a free event, yeah. Okay, any events going on in other parts of the metro of Vancouver, like in Surrey? Uh, we don't have any big things on our radar in metro Vancouver. We just have the fireworks in Mount Cypress and Whistler Blackcomb. Um, but of course, there's tons of restaurants celebrating with special menus tonight. 
um, everything from multi-course dinners to fun live food stations. Um, cities all over Metro Vancouver are doing that. So I would look at your local restaurants, too, to see what they have in store. You know what? That might appeal to a lot of people more than going out to a big party, especially a big fancy party. I mean, that's just not not in the cards for a lot of people. But going out for a nice dinner, that would be nice. So is it tough to get a reservation, do you think, at this late date? Some of them, I think, will probably be full, but we have a list of 29 restaurants that are doing special New Year's Eve dinners tonight. Uh, All these restaurants want to make your last meal of 2019 an epic one, so I would definitely check them out and see if they have any space. Some of them are pretty big restaurants, so I bet you could squeeze in. What are some of the restaurants jumping out at you on your list there? Ooh, so we have some beautiful menus set up for tonight, everywhere from Hawksworth for like a more high-end um, notch eight in the Fairmont, Vancouver, or as mentioned, you can go to Colony and have bites and and a couple drinks there too for a for a much lower price. Very nice. Now, how about if you're looking ahead to tomorrow, New Year's Day? A lot of people like to go out for a nice little New Year's Day brunch, right? Yes, that's right. So there right. are several places in Vancouver offering some awesome brunches tomorrow. One of them is Duke Fried Chicken, one of my favorites. They're going to have a special brunch menu on. Um, They call it the Cluck Your Resolutions Brunch. So you can head there and ring in the new year uh, with some delicious chicken and waffles. Uh, And Boulevard (laughs) Oyster Bar also has an incredible uh, New Year's Day brunch spread um, with lots of stations. So those would be probably two of my must-tries if you're going to go for New Year's Day brunch. Okay, what are your own plans? Where are you heading? Oh, you know what? I am just going to hang out with some buddies and hide from the rain because <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. we we do have some heavy rain and wind forecast. But yes. um, yeah. Okay, well, that's an awesome job. You guys do a great job there at the Daily Hive, Hannah, and I encourage people to uh, check out the Daily Hive there for a very comprehensive list of stuff going on in the city tonight and tomorrow, too. So thanks a lot for coming on with that. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Happy New Year. You you bet. Thank you. Same to you. That's Hannah McLean. She is the dished editor for Western Canada, dailyhive.com. So lots of party opportunities there. But as you heard Hannah say, you might want to bring your umbrella tonight. There's a major rainfall warning in effect for Metro Vancouver tonight. Let's find out more now from Global BC Chief Meteorologist Mark Madriga. Hi, Mark. Hey, hi there, Mike. Happy New Year, and we're still a few hours away, but uh, after my nap this afternoon, I'm set to go, let me tell you. Okay, okay, you're ready to go. It sounds like people are going to get wet if they're outside tonight. What's going on with all this rain? Well, you know, the timing may be just fine here for Vancouver, the way it's working uh, based on what I'm seeing on the satellite and some of our data. Now, that is heavy rain uh, for most of the afternoon, at least occasionally heavy until probably late afternoon. But the front looks like it's going to slip just south of the border by uh, this evening, meaning um, if all goes according to plan, Mike, we should have the rain taper to, you know, just a few showers this evening. So you could still get hit with some showers here and there uh, late this evening and toward midnight in the Vancouver area, but the main uh, hit of the heavy rain should be gone, and uh, you know, by dinner time, we'll have picked up about 40 to 50 millimeters in the rain gauge since early this morning, which is a lot of rain, but again, the timing is good to have it dry this evening, and um, the other the other element that I should add is uh, there's an outside chance, late evening through the overnight hours, we may have a lightning strike or two, a little thunder and lightning, uh, just, just as that front goes away, but over overall, at least, uh, the heavy rain will be gone, just the odd shower left. So uh, if you're downtown, I'd still carry an umbrella if you're headed somewhere, but uh, it shouldn't be too bad later on. Okay, that's some good news. This is another one of those atmospheric rivers that we've been talking about. Yeah, it sure is, and it's accompanied by a lot milder air. It, uh, Of course, with all that moisture content just dumping the rain here in the lower mainland today, uh, up in the mountains, I noticed grouse and, uh, and others had some heavy snow overnight, but it's quickly turning to rain this morning as that freezing level rises. So the atmospheric river, you bet, and it's uh, it has subtropical moisture there, which, uh, again, is coming from the lower latitudes, thus the rising freezing levels. And there's, uh, again, the break tonight and, and tomorrow looks like 
like a little gap between systems. And then there's another one of these atmospheric river streams coming in uh, for Thursday night and Friday. It may not be as much as we're getting today, but it's another shot of very mild, very moist air. Again, that'll be Thursday night and Friday, Mike. Okay, how about for the rest of the region, Mark, or in the interior? What are you expecting for New Year's Eve elsewhere? Well, uh, boy, it's been a messy uh, first half of the day, at least, in the Coquihalla, Allison Pass, Okanagan Connector, and even through some of the interior valleys. I noticed Kelowna's picked up anywhere from uh, 15 to 25 centimeters of fresh snow since uh, late yesterday. Uh, heading into this evening, things should settle down a bit in there. Still some uh, showers of rain or mixed rain and snow as it gets a little milder, places like Kelowna and Kamloops. Uh, right in the valley around Kamloops, it's been mostly rain showers and uh, with milder air tonight, probably the odd shower, but nothing too much in there. But the emphasis on uh, higher temperatures and, you know, probably three or four degrees above, uh, at least in the valleys in Kamloops and Kelowna this evening. And Vancouver will be up around 10 degrees tonight and again uh, with just the odd shower. But uh, uh, it could be worse. I mean, if it were, if midnight were right now, you'd be in the snow around Kelowna and the heavy rain in Vancouver. So thankfully, we're still, what, 11 or 12 hours away when it should be uh, a little better tonight, Mike. Okay, hoping for a good night for the people out and about tonight. Mark, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Happy New Year, Mike. All right, it's Mike Smith in for Simi Sarah today. It is New Year's Eve 2019, almost a memory. 2020 about to dawn. Time to take a look back at the year that was. Now, yesterday on the show, we did a year in review on provincial politics. Let's drill down a little deeper now to local government and the year in municipal politics Got a fantastic panel for you. Francis Buell the very fine Globe and Mail urban issues and politics writer. Francis, thanks for coming on. Hello. Yeah, thanks for having me. You bet, Francis. Thank you. Also on the line is Frank Buchholz, the excellent columnist at the Surrey Now Leader and the Peace Arch News. Frank, it's nice to talk to you again. Yes, thanks so much, Mike. Okay, guys, let's start with uh, one of the big stories of the year. We covered it a lot on the show this year, and Francis, for your take on it, and the, and the Surrey RCMP saga, and whether we're ever going to get uh, rid of the RCMP in Surrey, as promised by Surrey Mayor Doug McCallum, and transition to a local police force. This has just been a red-hot issue and debate in Surrey. McCallum has lost a few of his councillors over it. What are your thoughts on that whole issue this year? Well, it is, I mean, it's not an unreasonable idea to shift over. Um, you know, Surrey is the largest city in Canada, still with the RCMP. Um, so it's not, it's not the craziest idea ever, but the whole process of the way it's going has just created unbelievable division in the city, uh, you know, the likes of which like Frank will say better than I, um, that people have, haven't seen in decades. Uh, and it's created a really nasty feeling, unfortunately, which I think is going to impede the process a little bit and make it all much more difficult. Okay, Frank, you've written a lot about this this year, too. What are your thoughts? Um, I agree with everything that Francis has said, and what I would add to that is that I think because of the division and the nastiness, this is probably going to start to spill upstream a little bit to the provincial government. The provincial government has made the decision that they can go ahead with a Surrey police force with Wally Opal overseeing this. And um, Surrey uh, has six out of the nine MLAs, or NDP MLAs, and some of them won seats that were formerly BC Liberal seats. Right. And I have a feeling that there's going to be significant pressure placed on those MLAs in the coming year. Francis, this is a, a, a Doug McCallum-led council. When we look back at the municipal election in Surrey, he won big. He won a big majority, and he was very clearly campaigning on a, a local police force for the city of Surrey. And then when he starts to implement it, his councillors start to abandon him. So he lost three of his safe Surrey councillors there in Surrey. He's still hanging on there with a the bare majority with the councillors he's got left. But what went wrong for McCallum on this file, do you think? Well, as I said, it's it's kind of a personal, it, like the way he, what a leadership issue. You know, he could have brought people along. He could have included them more. 
he could have, um, you know, had a different process. And instead, it seems to be that he says, I won big and I'm just going to do whatever. He didn't win big. He won 13% of the actual vote in Surrey, if you, you know, break it down by turnout and everything like that. Um, So, uh, but I, you know, the councillors who left, especially Brenda Locke and Jack Hundle, I think if there had been a better process and they were included, if they weren't sort of marginalized and, and felt, uh, you know, shut out of uh, you're not in the inner circle because you don't agree with everything I say, which, you know, has we have to remember this has been Mayor McCallum's leadership style in the past. I think it could have gone better, but this insistence that I won big and I'm going to do whatever I want is not helping. Frank, your thoughts? No, I... I agree with that, that the way McCallum has led the issue almost from the beginning is what has sown so much of this discord. Uh, Jack Hundell is a former Surrey RCMP officer. He would have been a natural individual to work with closely on this. He basically had one short meeting with the mayor, and that was it. And I think uh, to illustrate the point even more, just before Christmas it came out that the they had kept the results of a survey and public meetings with the public in March and April on this transition secret, uh, and it required freedom of information requests to try and get that publicized. And then McCallum went out and said 98% of those who took part are in support of this, and clearly they weren't. And so, you know, it's not only his poor leadership, but it's an outright fudging of facts and he's just, he's lost a lot of people that I think otherwise would have supported this, do, both do you, on you, council and in the community. Do you think, Frank, that one of the problems here for McCallum in trying to sell this idea is that maybe people in Surrey were under the impression that if they go to a local police force, they're going to have more cops. And the plan that came out had fewer cops and it was going to cost more money. And that, that seemed to be a bit of a wake-up call for a lot of people. Yeah, that was definitely, I think, the first wake-up call, and that came out in the in the report that they prepared, which council basically had no input into, and they only saw it uh, after the fact. Um, I, think, I don't think that people were necessarily expecting the force would be a lot bigger. Um, I think what they were expecting is that it would be more uh, committed to the community than the RCMP, where people move in and out and where Ottawa is calling a lot of the shots through E-Division. Um, and I, th- I think that that was one thing that, and I think those who support it still, and there's still lots of people who do support the idea, that's what they like about the idea. But I think that what that indicated is it's going to cost a lot of money. And I think then yeah. other, some other people who were perhaps indifferent said, well, do we want to spend all this money, and is it going to make that much difference? Okay, Francis, we reach the end of the year, and as Frank said, the provincial government has given the provisional green light to this whole idea. They've appointed Wally Opal, the former attorney general, to head kind of a transition process. But what are your thoughts on entering into 2020? Is this actually going to get done? Is the city of Surrey going to get a local police department, or do you think they'll end up keeping the RCMP? Is that a possibility? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I do think they've they've gone quite a ways down this road, um, and it. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if. Well, it's hard to say. Sometimes I think the provinces kind of gave the mayor a, a lot of rope to do things with, if you know what I mean. Uh, and uh, uh, but they have gone a long way down this road, and it wouldn't look great for them if it turned into a complete shambles. Uh, and uh, but and you do see a Wally Opal, who's the commissioner and you know sort of in charge of this, making certain comments about you know that's not true what the mayor is saying you know they they you don't yeah. have a police board right away and things like that. So I think for them, as Frank said, it's going to be a bit of a dilemma. Do they just let it you know sort of evolve in this messy way, or do they take charge, having allowed it to go forward? It's okay, guys. We did a good look back at the Surrey RCMP issue. Real quickly, before we move on to other municipalities, Francis, the Surrey Skytrain promise for McCallum, where does that stand right now? 
I mean, I think it's on pretty solid ground. Uh, that's not meant to be a pun about trying to put pilings into the serpentine as they go across <laughs> across the bog there. But, um, you, you know, uh, uh, the head of TransLink, Kevin Desmond, he threw himself into redoing the plan um, to make this possible. I think the uh, federal government, the you know, the minority liberals are very interested in shoring up support uh, in the suburban areas where they can. They're not likely to turn down funding for it. Uh, so I think it is going to go ahead, uh, that one, and I think there's there's less debate over that. Uh, as you know, uh, at TransLink, what they've said repeatedly is the whole light rail system was premised on the idea it wasn't going to be as cost effective as a SkyTrain right away. The whole idea was that it was going to be a community building kind of transit system rather than a commuter type transit system. Uh, so that you don't get the same arguments uh, as you do over the police over this big project right. change. Let's talk about some Vancouver politics now, guys. And when you take a look at Vancouver City Council in 2019, I guess it was a year of big ideas, but did they move the needle on any big issues at all? I mean, what have they accomplished over there under uh, at Vancouver City Hall? Frank, your thoughts? Well, I think the main thing they've accomplished is they put taxes up by 7%. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, so everyone in Vancouver, homeowners business owners, renters, is going to pay a lot more. And uh, what surprised me is that you've got a new mayor and you've got council representing a lot of different perspectives, which I think is quite reflective of the city itself. But they really can't work together to get a lot of consensus to move forward on very many issues. Francis. Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear what it looks like from Langley because, you know, we're in the middle of the forest and the trees and the leaves here. But, no, I, I feel like the entire year was spent with this council trying to figure out what it was. I mean, we had 10 years of a council that was totally dominated by Vision Vancouver and the team around Gregor Robertson. So you knew what was going to happen all the time. They set out their agenda and they did it. And they, to anyone who disagreed with them, they said, too bad, you lost the election, we're in charge, and this is what we're going to do. Uh, and now every single meeting that all of us go to, you're like, oh, my God, how is this going to work out? It's like a giant murder mystery every week um, that goes on forever and ever, I must say. I've, council meetings now take three or four days sometimes. So I think they've just been working out what kind of a council they are. And it turns out they're kind of centrist, not too left, not too right, voting for most development proposals, supporting the SkyTrain. Um, the, with the budget, what you clearly saw was the six left-wingers or progressives or whatever you want to call them uh, in charge there. They decided that they were going to go for a big tax increase in order to support more services. And uh, they, they outvoted by one vote, the NPA. So you saw the most clear division there, uh, the most clear alignment uh, uh, alignments forming. Frank, taking a look uh, around the other municipalities in the metro region, what are the other big stories that jumped out at you this year? Well, one of the big ones for me was a very uh, significant change in uh, direction and focus in Burnaby. Uh, Mayor Derek Corrigan, who was defeated in October 2018, was a very vocal opponent of uh, those who said, we've got to preserve some of the low-rise low rental buildings in the uh, metro town area. We've got to slow down the rate of uh, building these uh, sky-rise, sky, sky high-rise condo towers there, yeah. which are basically uh, you know owner-occupied or rented out at very high rates, and uh, Mayor Mike Hurley, who came in and ran as an independent, uh, was elected. Seven of the eight Burnaby Citizens Association councillors uh, are, are there, and Mayor Hurley seems to have been able to work with those people, and they've taken a new direction, I think, on housing, especially for people with lower incomes, on dealing with homelessness, which Corrigan claimed didn't exist in Burnaby, and I think in really moving in a direction that I think all local governments in the Metro Vancouver area have to move in, which is really consider how the decisions they make about land use 
affect people who are at the lower end of the economic scale. Francis, what jumped out for you? Well, yeah, obviously Burnaby, um, whose rental policies, people are still waiting to see if the development community can absorb that or if they're just going to say this is too rich for our blood. Because essentially the rental policies say if you displace anyone, you have to find them an apartment at the same rent or subsidize it so they're paying the same rent. And then when the new building is built, allow them to move back in at the old rent that they were paying. So that's really a a huge change, and I think everyone's waiting to see how that works out. On the other hand, the, the, the kind of reverse, Uh, The flip side of that is the District of North Vancouver, which, you know, I mean, it's not the most, uh, you know, development-friendly city at the best of times, but, you know, it had a somewhat progressive council. Um, They have really made a reputation for themselves in the region by turning down everything, affordable housing projects that were going to have units, renting to seniors for below market, built on a city parking lot, not displacing anyone, townhouses, um, other apartments. It's just kind of amazing what's going on over there in terms of their decision to just, I don't know, not allow anything. So uh, that is a, a, the, the, really the reverse of what's happening in Burnaby. One of, the, one of the things that jumped out at me this year, guys, for your thoughts, and was the situation with uh, some of the housing pressures in a lot of the municipalities, but especially in Maple Ridge, where there was a local fight over a modular housing project the provincial government wanted to bring in. The mayor there really speaking up aggressively on it against the the BC government in Victoria. Frank, do you see that as any kind of a flashpoint issue going forward? Because I got a feeling that this could be a tough one for the John Horgan government in that community where the NDP won a couple of very, very closely contested seats that they really want to hang on to if they want to stay in power. Yeah, no, you're quite right that uh, that is going to be a tough one for the province. Uh, the homelessness issue in Maple Ridge has been a disaster for probably 15 or more years. Uh, successive councils have not dealt with it. There's been homeless camps. There's been confrontations between residents and people living in these camps. Uh, there's been, you know, public safety issues. And, uh, you know, I think what the province was proposing with the modular housing is a good idea. It may not have been the ideal location, but, you know, Maple Ridge has just not shown a whole lot of willingness to compromise and, you know, try and work with the province on this. And, uh, you know, so far, I mean, their their position has prevailed. But the issue is, is not something any community should be proud of, to have a lot of homeless people on the streets. Francis, you've got well, a minute I left here. Say, uh, it, you know, you're seeing more of this kind of resistance uh, and kind of anti-homeless attitudes emerging in different municipalities. Surrey passed an anti-sleeping-in-your-RV law. Um, uh, Grand Forks had a motion at the UBCM about, you know, kind of, we don't want the provincial government to just come in and dictate where social housing should go. Places like Salmon Arm and Penticton had bylaws to prevent panhandling or sleeping on the street. I think that, you know, Vancouver went through a lot of this 10 or 15 years ago, and now you're seeing this in a lot of um, outlying suburbs and smaller rural communities who are seeing visible homelessness surging in their communities, and, you know, their impulse is to try to make it go away somehow. Guys, a lot of ground to cover. We could have done a whole nother hour on it, I think, but uh, we'll see what happens in 2020. It certainly was an interesting 2019. Thanks a lot to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much, and Happy New Year to you both.